This morning's reading, we're still in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, and we will go through the end of the chapter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Thanks, Jim. Um, Let's uh, begin with prayer, and then we'll take a look. Lord, thank you for the mercy that you've shown us and the grace that you extend to us. And Lord, the the special care that you fix on your people, that you um, provide to your church, and your general grace to a world in rebellion against you. Um, Thank you for your mercies that are new every day to us. And uh, Lord, we pray for the firefighters, especially here in California. We just seem to have many more fires than a lot of other places. Um, Lord, I pray for the men and women who are out fighting these fires, that you would uh, provide their needs. Lord, that you would renew their strength and that they would be able to serve the public good by by containing and, and extinguishing these fires. Father, we pray for the families that have been affected by these, the evacuations, the homes and property destroyed. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, in in the loss, in the um, seeing how temporary the things of this world are, uh, Lord, that they might reach for you. And Lord, you are not far away. Um, You you can be found. And so we pray that uh, you would send 
the word of, of hope, the message of the gospel to those who, who are in need right now, those who will, uh, through the loss of their property and their goods, would, would finally hear and pay attention. So have mercy on them for that, to that end as well. Um, Father, uh, I just thank you for your word that you've given to us. And so this morning, Lord, would you help us to understand a, a difficult passage, a, a challenging teaching? I think this might be what Peter was talking about when, when he said um, some people don't understand what Paul writes. Um, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would spiritually discern these things and understand what it is that you have to say so that we might bear fruit to God, that we might worship more fully and, and wholeheartedly, Lord, that we might serve with greater appreciation for the salvation that we've enjoyed, that we enjoy, and Lord, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And Lord, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, good morning, everybody. Um, for some reason I'm not full. There we go. Um, so, as you can see, Lisa's not here, so I'm preaching to myself, which is a bit of a challenge, but. We'll make this work. So we're, we're in chapter seven. We're going to finish chapter seven. Um, as Jim noted, it's, it's a bit longer of a passage, but really I, th I think it's the thought unit. So we, we got to go with it. Um, just a reminder, though, because we'll get lost in the weeds here if we don't ground ourselves. Um, don't forget that the book of Romans is uh, the, the message, the thesis statement is that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And, uh, and we've, we peeled that back earlier, but I want to just go through it one more time. It's the power of God. It's not the power of us. And it's the power of God for salvation. And implied in that is people need to be saved. Uh, people need salvation. It's the power of God for salvation for all. If all need salvation, this power is made available to all, not just certain types or classes of people, but it's available to everyone. And the most important part there is it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, not who behave well enough, not who are, um, you know, uh, smart enough, not who are, you know, able to control their appetites or something. It's the power of God for all who believe. And so we're saved by faith. Um, what we looked at uh, earlier in the letter, after we talked about the need for salvation, as we discussed justification. And uh, you remember, justification is not being declared innocent. It is actually being declared righteous, that you have done the right thing. And what we saw was we are not righteous, but God gives us a foreign righteousness. It's, he, Paul calls it the righteousness of God. That comes to us, and that's how we're declared to be righteous. So where we're at now in Paul's discussion of this, is his um, thoughts on this, is we've now moved since chapter 6 into, well, now that we're saved, how should we live? How, how do we live to save people? And he's been using some rhetorical questions to kind of get us through this. Um, may, uh, may we sin now because we're under grace? Uh, should, should we sin more because uh, it makes God's grace abound more? It makes God look better, so we should sin more, right? And of course not. That's not what it means to be justified. Um, and so the question he asked this morning is, um, well, if we're not under law, if we're under grace, um, and we were in sin when we were under law, but now we're under God's grace, does that mean that God's law is sin? Is, it, is God's law a bad thing? Um, is it what causes us to be in trouble? And so that's how he starts. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. 
Um, so he, he, he reminds us that the law is not the thing that, that causes us to be condemned. Um, the law is simply God's standard. It is what God says, this is how humanity is supposed to live. This is how we sh you should be functioning. This is the way you should um, think and feel and, and desire. And sin comes in and says, well, I don't want that. So the problem isn't with the standard that God built. The problem is with sin. And so he says, by no means, if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, notice he doesn't say, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have sinned. He, he would still sin. And that's what he's maintained when he takes us right back to Adam as the problem. Adam was well before the law, and yet sin was in the world through, uh, um, despite there being no law given yet. Um, so when he says, um, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. What he's saying there is, if the commandment hadn't come to me and said, you shall not or you shall, then I wouldn't known that it was wrong necessarily. Um, now, this, is, this gets a little complicated here. Because remember earlier I said the way Paul uses the word law varies quite a bit. And you have to really pay attention to the context you're in. The passage that we're looking at today, it's going to vary widely. And so when he talks about the law here at the beginning in, in verse 7, he's almost assuredly talking about the Mosaic law. But look at the very end of the passage, um, the end of chapter 7. Uh, he talks about um, that there's a law of... Um, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So the law of sin can't be the Mosaic law. So you see what I mean? He, he changes it. As a matter of fact, um, I remember in, uh, in uh, Jim's reading at one point, I was looking for the word law and the way the NASB translated was principle or, or concept or something like that. And the word was law, but that's how complicated it is. So um, what Paul is saying here at the beginning is, if it hadn't been for law, I wouldn't have known sin. Now, the reason I say that's almost assuredly the Mosaic law is because of what he says next in verse 8, uh, or in the rest of verse 7, rather. He says, um, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law had, had not said, you shall not covet. Um, so, it, I don't know if you remember last week, I mentioned that there was two different ways of understanding law. There's the natural law, which is that law that's written on our hearts, and we know that these things are wrong. It's just kind of the way that human beings behave, and that was natural law. That's what's built into us. And then I said, there's another category that you could call positive law, and it's positive because God positively states it. Um, so when Paul picks up here, he says, you shall not covet. He's, he's pointing to positive law, um, he knows that the Ten Commandments, the last commandment is you shall not covet. Um, and so that's why I think he's leaning towards the Mosaic law. Notice he doesn't say, um, if uh, I wouldn't have known what it was to murder if the law hadn't said you shall not murder. Well, you know that it's wrong to murder. He, he would know that. He picks the most subtle, the most challenging one of the commandments and says, this is the one that got me, was coveting. And, and you remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to, uh, to uh, have eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. And he says, oh, I have followed them all of my life. And so Jesus reminds him, well, then sell everything you have and come and follow me. Jesus was pointing to coveting. The man had a lot of riches. He couldn't release them. 
they, they were worth more to him than following Jesus. And so he went away sad. So Paul picks that same one, coveting. It's, it's the trickiest one. It's the one that's, that lies closest to the heart. It's hard to recognize when it comes up because what is coveting? Well, coveting is wanting something, but wanting something isn't bad. Um, Jesus on the cross said, I thirst. He wanted a drink. There was nothing sinful about wanting. What covetousness is, is it's a distortion of wanting. It, it's a, remember we've talked before about disordered passions. It is saying, I want this thing more than I want anything else. Um, this one thing is the thing that will make me happy. And so Paul says, I just kind of did that. That was just, you know, I wanted things and, and it never bothered me that I really was envious of this neighbor of mine who had a much better pool in his backyard than I did. It never bothered me until the law came along and said, you shall not covet. And now all of a sudden, you know, great, now I'm coveting and now I know it's wrong. So that's the picture that he paints there is sin comes along, seizes that commandment, you shall not covet, and it produces all kinds of covetousness in him. Now it's not only his pool that I want, um, I really like his light fixtures in the backyard, and, and he's got a better job than me, and, and uh, his kids are better behaved, and his lawn is in better shape, and now I want everything. And so that law comes along, and it just is like gasoline on the fire, and it flames up in him. Um, it, it produces all kinds of covetousness. And he says in verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So what he said is, apart from the law, sin lays dead, but once it comes alive, then I die. Now, what does he mean by he was alive apart from the law and sin lays dead? Well, I don't think what he's saying is until the commandment came, there was no law and, and there was no sin because there was no law. When he says it lays dead, um, it, it's not like expired beyond resurrection because it comes alive and it grabs him. What he's talking about it laying dead is it's dormant. It's not active yet. Um, so I was alive apart from the law. I thought I was doing fine without the law. And then the law comes along and suddenly it flames up this sin. This sin comes and it attacks me and now I've died. And so he's using these, these word pictures. Um, so that, that's what he's talking about. It's not um, that sin was inactive. Now, the picture that he paints here of sin, it almost seems like it's a living, or it has a life of its own. It's this, own, this other being or something, like it's this force that can infect you. Um, but what he's doing, he's just trying to paint word pictures. So what does he mean by sin? What is sin that it would do these things? Well, according to 1 John 3, 4, um, John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Because sin is lawlessness. So sin is not this external force that comes in. Sin is violating the law. Doesn't that fit with what he's explaining to us here? So as he's going through, he's answering his own question. So is the law sin? If I sin under law, is the law the problem with sin? And, and so in verse 12, he says, no, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, and it's righteous, and it's good. So when God gives the law, he's not giving the law to make people miserable. Um, it, the law is holy. The commandment is holy. 
So when God gives law, he's doing it not from a negative standpoint, but from a positive one. It's a good thing that you do these things. Um, the, the commandment and the law are good. So for example, this is how we react to these things. The law tells us the way we must treat our servants. So Exodus 21, 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So that's the law. What's the law explaining there? What the law is saying is don't abuse your servants. Don't, don't beat them up. But what we do as sinners is we immediately want to look for qualifications. Um, what if I hit him hard enough to damage his eye, but it basically works? Is that okay? Um, can I hit him hard enough to maybe, you know, knock his eye out of joint a little bit, and then, then he still has to serve me? Or, well, what if uh, I hit her hard enough uh, to loosen a tooth? Or what happens if I smack her and it chips a tooth? Do I still have to let her? What we're looking for is we're looking for a line there. What's the point where I'm not violating that law? What God's point in the law was not, um, you can hit them this hard, but not that hard. What he's saying is, treat your servants well. Treat them kindly. And, and when we look at the broader context of the law, he reminds them, these are your fellow Israelites. You're not allowed to treat them like garbage. You have to treat them with care. But what we want to do is we want to find the limits. We want to find ways to get around it. So that's what I, an example of, of one thing I think when he says the law is good, is it's expressing God's desire. It's expressing God's um, thoughts about how humanity should behave. Um, so that, that's one of the problems. Now, what happens with sin? So what does sin actually do? In verse 8, he says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So that was his example. Sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced sin. And then in verse 11, he says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, repeats the same thing, deceived me, and through it killed me. So what this first section is, this first piece that he's talking about, verses 7 through 13, this theological truth that he wants to bring to us is, Sin multiplies, sin lies, and sin kills. That's what sin does. And what sin does is it steals its best ideas from the law. So sin takes the opportunity of the commandment. It deceives. It says, you know, God said not to eat from that tree, but, you know, he, he's trying to keep something good from you. And if you just disobey him in this one thing, it'll be much better for you. Um, now, we would roll our eyes and go, I'm not buying that. But there are many other subtle ways in which it lies. Jesus, when he was talking to the Pharisees and John, said that they were following their father, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So Satan, who uses this, that's the way he does it. He deceives and he kills. And so that's what sin does in this section. And covetousness shows that, because covetousness says, this thing will make you happy. God won't make you happy. God won't fulfill you. He won't make you all that you can possibly be. He's trying to keep you back. But if you do this one thing, or if you take this one thing, that'll make you full. That'll make you whole. That will help you be as happy as you possibly can be, because God doesn't really want you to be happy. Um, 
That's the lie that covetousness says. That's the, the, the deceitfulness of covetousness. And so where Paul goes with this is he, he shows us in the end that, the, that sin is utterly sinful. So why does the law come? Does it br- to bring death to me? Is, he says it it's, comes in so that sin might shown to be sin and that the commandment might show sin to be sinful beyond measure. So the theological truth that we grab here first is sin is deceitful, sin kills, and that sin is utterly sinful. Um, That's going to be important when we look at the next section, verses 14 through 23, which is what I would call experiential truth. Uh, So 14 through 23, let me read it, and then we can talk about it. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not want to do, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is, uh, is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find this, find it to be the, to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lays close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law that dwells within my members. So I wanted to get that firmly in front of us um, because this is one of the most contested parts of, um, of Romans. Um, who's Paul talking about here? What is he, is he identifying himself now as a believer? Is he referring to himself as uh, before he came to Christ? Um, is he talking about non-believers in general? Um, it's, it's really, there's a lot of discussion on this. Uh, the most widely held view, um, it, and it goes all the way back to St. Augustine and to the Reformation, is that Paul is actually referring to believers in this section. Um, and the reason that you can say that is, is he talks about verse 15. He says that he hates sin. I do the very thing I hate. Well, believers hate sin. Unbelievers don't really care. Um, he says that, uh, or believers um, do not desire, unbelievers, I'm sorry, he says uh, unbelievers would be the ones who do not desire to do what is right. And in this context, which is verses 18, 19, and 21, he, he wants to do what is right, but he's struggling to do it. Whereas unbelievers would just do it, and they, they wouldn't really bother them that much. Maybe the repercussions would, but the doing wouldn't. Um, he says that he delights in the law of God in verse 22. He says that he serves the law of God with his mind. So that sounds like a believer. That sounds like the things that a believer would do. Now, another position, which is not as widely held, but there are a number of good evangelical scholars that hold it. They say that Paul here is referring to either unbelievers or referring to himself before he became a believer. And here's why. Um, He says in verse 14, I am sold under sin. And I'm of the flesh. Uh, He says in verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. 
Uh, he also says that he has no capability, no ability to carry out what is right. He says in verse 19, I keep doing evil. He, he says in verses 23 and 25, I am captive to and serve the law of sin. So one of the problems is just reading Paul in context, back in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, he says that he's free from that. So he's he, in verses 23 and 25 in our section, he says that he's captive to and he serves under the law of sin. But listen to verse six, 17 and 18 from chapter 6. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have been, become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. So captive to and serving the law of sin doesn't sound like it agrees with that. Um, he, he talks about the person that he's talking about has the desire to keep God's law, and it reflects kind of a mindset maybe of a pious Jew before his conversion, right? This, this desire to, to, to keep law. And then um, the section that opens, or the verse that opens the section, verse 13, talks about how the law brought death to Paul. And again, you look at, at uh, verse uh, chapter 6, and it doesn't seem to fit with that. So um, who is Paul talking about? Well, in one hand, it sounds like believers, doesn't it? I, I, um, that first section, um, he hates sin. He wants to do what's right. He delights in God's law. He serves the law of God with his mind. It sounds like a believer. But when you take the second part, that doesn't sound like a believer. It doesn't sound like somebody who's been justified by faith. They're sold under sin of the flesh. Nothing good dwells in them. They keep doing evil. The captives of the law of sin. Um, so which one is it? <laughs> Who are we talking about? Uh, one of the, let me add one qualification before I give you my answer. Um, if you disagree with me, that's perfectly fine. Um, I'm going to try to convince you of my position, but uh, people dis differ on this because of that. But whichever camp you come out in, you have to find a way to reconcile both of these statements, um, the negatives and the positives that go on in this. Uh, so here's, here's where I go with this. I believe that it is talking about believers. Um, so it, it, it's speaking, Paul is speaking of his current um, condition, his current, ex, uh, uh, his current experience. That's why I said this is the experiential truth. Um, now, why would I say that if, I, if he's sold under sin, nothing good dwells in me, captive to, and all of that? Um, what he's saying is, I, I believe, is, is he still struggles with sin. And so um, that's something that he has said before, Galatians 5.17. Um, he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, and those two oppose each other um, to keep you from doing the things you want. And he's talking to the Galatians as believers and commending them to do what is right. Um, also in, um, in uh, 1 John... One through eight through nine, he talks about um, uh, if if you're carried away with sin, then you're probably not a believer. But if you say that you don't sin, then you're making God out to be a liar. So he talks about that struggle with the believer wrestling with sin. Um, one of the things that we've also learned is once you're justified, um, you can and you should grow in that sanctification. Remember, we talked about sanctification last week and and what it means to be spiritual the week before. And then last week we talked about what it means to be spiritual. Um, so when you're in that position, you're growing in grace. 
and, and you're becoming more Christ-like, but it's a process and it takes time. Uh, so one of the things that I think is, as we grow in that grace, as we become progressively more Christ-like, um, what we see is the big sins that, that really confronted us early on in our Christian life, they begin to fade away. The Holy Spirit is beginning to, to make them fade. And so some of these sins will fall away, some instantaneously, some will fade over time. And then what comes up behind them is these little sins that you hadn't noticed before. It hadn't really bothered you that much that, well, I tell a little light, light, lie every once in a while. It's not that big of a deal. Suddenly, when the big sins are gone and you're growing more in grace, now even those little ones begin to bother you a lot. So I think what Paul is doing here is this is a man who's been walking with the Lord for a number of years. He's growing in grace. He sees the sins of his past. Um, you know, he was a persecutor of the church. He, he still remembers those, but he also knows that he's got some issues that he's still dealing with, but the big ones have fallen off. And now what we would consider to be smaller or minor sins really trouble him. And so that's what I think you can bring these two together. And I'll explain it a little bit more uh, to prove that point as we work through it a little bit. But I think that's what's going on is Paul is referring to himself and he's saying, these little sins now seem huge to me. Before they didn't, but now they did. So um, one of the things that we have to take care of here is he, Paul talks about sin as this foreign force that invades him. Um, it's no longer I who do it, but sin in me does that. Um, as if it's, you know, like competing uh, power within him. Um, what we need to remember is what we said earlier, sin distorts our desires. That's why covetousness is a real problem is because our desires become disordered. Uh, so Paul is speaking in a way that sounds like he's making sin a foreign animal or a foreign invader, but sin is us. It's what we do. Um, so why is Paul conflict or conflicted about this? Where is the struggle coming in for him? How is he, he why is he wrestling with this? And what Paul does in this section is he attributes his wrestling, his desire to do it, but not a lack of ability to the flesh. Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Uh, and, and earlier he said, I, I want to serve the law of God with my mind. And so what we're seeing there is there's this kind of distinction between um, who he is and who he's not yet. His spirit, our spirit has been renewed by the Holy Spirit, right? Our, we've got a new heart. Um, it's inclined towards obedience. It desires obedience. He, that's why Paul says, I have the desire to do what is right. Um, an unbeliever before they're, they're um, united with Christ doesn't have the desire to do what is right. They have the desire to do what makes them look good or what makes them comfortable or what will get them ahead. But the right part really doesn't into it. So Paul says, I have this desire, but my flesh is what keeps hanging me up. I am of the flesh, verse 14, has a meaning. And what we have to remember is that when we became believers in Christ, when we were justified by faith, when we were united with Christ through faith, something happened internally. Our hearts were renewed, our minds were renewed, but your physical body didn't change at all. Your physical body remained exactly the same. So while your heart and your mind are inclined to want to follow God, your body has been walking for a very long time in these bad practices, and it rather would 
you know, continue those. It would rather keep doing those bad practices. And so that's the picture we get with Paul wrestling here with lingering sin and his desire to fight it is the flesh is heading one way, his, his born again spirit, his, his renewed mind is heading in a different way. So he says in verses 22 and 23, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, I see in my members another law waging war. Paul's inner being, um, I think what Jim's translation said was his inner man, your inner self has been renewed, and that delights in the law of God, but the members are what's physically contaminated and continues to reach for sin and wanting to go that way. So that's his struggle. As he went through this whole thing, he's, I, I want to I do this, but I don't seem to be able to pull it off. And what I don't want to do, suddenly I wake up and I find myself doing it, and, and I don't know how to, how to get through this, and it's just really hard. So the, the theological truth that we learned at the beginning is sin is deceitful. It, it will lie to you. It will trick you. It will do whatever it can to make you believe that what it's offering is better. The experiential portion that we're in here, Paul is saying, and I fall for it on occasion. My flesh still thinks that that little white lie is going to make it better, or my flesh still thinks that my neighbor has it better than I do, or my flesh thinks whatever this thing is, but in my mind, in my inner being, I'm wrestling with that. I'm going, man, that's not right. And I know it. And so he's struggling back and forth with the two of these. So is this your experience? Have you experienced anything like that? Have you sinned and felt like it was an invading army coming in? Were you, you one more time, just, you know, look at that other person with just a little longer than you should have. And you go, man, where does that come from? Why? It feels like it's something else that invaded and just kind of directed your eyes in that way. Or, um, you know, nobody's going to notice if I take this little thing, it won't hurt at all. You know, the, the company can afford it. So I'll just take a little bit of it and it'll be fine. And then you get home and you go, why did I do that? What? I get nothing out of it. it it's not right. It, you know, I should pay for this. This is wrong. Um, that is sin's deceiving voice. It's this lying voice that's lying to you. But, you know, my experience today has been, uh, in these modern times, is not so much that sin is prowling, especially for believers, so much in the area of um, behaviors, do this, don't do that. Um, it seems like sin's turned a corner and is now going for apathy. Um, I just don't care. I don't feel like it, it really is important. It's, maybe it's, you know, no big deal. I just, I don't feel like it is, is that much of a deal anymore. Um, and, and apathy can be sin's lying voice as well. Um, and, and what I want to point out is a couple of scriptures to remind you that apathy is nothing new. Um, the scripture writers were aware that apathy can set in and, and they warmed us. So, Second uh, Peter, verses 9 through 14. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the, but the, day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will burn up and dissolve, and the earth and its works will be, that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in our lives 
of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening for the day of the Lord's coming. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So what Peter is saying is he's, he's looking and he said, you know, the scoffers are going, well, you claim Jesus is coming back, but hey, nothing's really changed. You know, nothing's going on. And so Peter is aware that the people he's writing to may be lulled by that. That may actually have an influence on him. So he writes and he says, don't slip into that apathy thinking, well, Jesus, you know, it's been 2,000 years and Jesus still isn't back. So maybe he's not coming or who knows. Um, he, Peter writes and he says, no, you, you need to keep on guard. And Jesus himself warned about that. He told a parable in Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here comes the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And when they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so Jesus' application of that is, watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. So what Jesus is warning there is about apathy. It's about sliding into, well, you know, it's been a while. Nothing's happening. So we have to use the tools that have been available to us to fight that lie of sin, whatever it is. And it will be different for different people. Um, if you see somebody and you recognize a, a sin in them and you, they don't seem to get it, it may be that that's a sin you're wrestling with internally or one that you have been delivered from. And so you need to show them a little grace, help them along, remind them. But also remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was doing silly things like that, even if it's not the same sin. So we need to be careful with this. We need to encourage each other. And really, the, I think the war we have to fight these days is apathy, is just sliding into not really caring too much anymore. And you, you do that by using the spiritual means that we talked about last week. But also, the way Paul ends this section, verses 24 and 25, is he started with a theological truth about sin. And then in the next section, he talked about his experience. He talked about an experiential truth. You will wrestle with sin. It is something that you need to engage with. And then finally, he gives us in 24 and 25, the gospel truth. How do you do that? What, what tools do we have to, to engage that? So he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he, he doesn't even answer the question. He just stops and praises God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And so what he's telling us here in this gospel truth 
is he says, first of all, don't count on yourself. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And, and notice he doesn't say now, not, or I'm sorry, not, he doesn't say, well, how may I be delivered? He knows that he has to be delivered by a person who will deliver me. And he doesn't say, well, what are the tools or, or what are the, the steps that I need to be delivered from this? He doesn't look for himself to do this. He looks to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Don't count on yourself in that war on sin. You will lose. You don't have the power to do it. You have been given the power to do it through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The other thing I think we need to remember from this gospel truth is don't deny the struggle. Paul didn't. He didn't deny he was struggling. And what he wrote for us in admitting his struggle was inspired by God and, and contained in the scriptures for the church forever. He says, I serve the law of God, but my flesh serves the law of sin. It, it, that is inspired text, and it's a reality. And it can only describe a believer who's wrestling with this. I'd serve the law of God, unbelievers don't, and the law, my flesh is going after this law of sin. The struggle is real. Don't deny the struggle or you'll be trapped by it. And then the other thing is, don't ever look away from Jesus in the struggle. Thanks be to God through Jesus. He's, he's reminding us, keep your eye on Jesus through the struggle. And, and he admits that it is a fight. Um, some sins, when we became a believer, God vanquished them immediately. They were just gone. Others linger for a while and fade. And some are just really hard to fight. Our, our flesh is just going to go that direction. Um, so there's a, um, there's a hymn by Horatius Boner, a 19th century poet and hymn writer called The Good Fight. And I just want to read most of it for us. Um, I think he paints a very good picture and in the end lands where we need to be. I came and saw and hoped to conquer as the great Roman once had done. His, one was, his was one hour torrent of shock of battle. My field was harder to be won. I came and saw, but did not conquer. The foes were fierce, their weapons strong. I came, I saw, but yet I did not conquer. For me, the fight was sore and long. They said the war was brief and easy. A word, a look would crush the throng. To some, it may have been a, been a moment's conflict. To me, it has been sore and long. They said the threats were coward bluster. To brave men, they could work no wrong. So some may boast of swift and easy battle. To me, it has been sore and long. And yet, I know that I shall conquer, though sore and hard the fight may be. I know, I know I shall be more than victor through him who won the fight for me. So that's the promise is don't forget you have been justified. And justification is not you've been spiffied up enough to make it on your own. Justification is not, well, you were declared innocent, so you better not screw it up now. Justification is Jesus' righteousness has been applied to you and you are now counted to be righteous. Under that protection, under that umbrella, 
you now engage this war, which might for some people be easy, a moment's conflict. But for many of us in different areas, in different ways, it is sore and it is long. And so since we've been justified, since we have Jesus' righteousness applied to us, since we have been given the Holy Spirit, we have the tools to wage that war. And in the end, what we have to do is agree with Bonner on this. I know, I know shall, I shall be more than victor through him who won the fight for me. The very next thing Paul says, which will start next week, this is first verses of chapter eight is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of the sin and death. You have been justified. There is no condemnation for you. Even when that sin deceives you and gets you to turn a corner you'd rather not, there is no condemnation for you. The law of the Spirit has set you free. You have been justified. And so the scriptural admonition, when we face those sins, when we wrestle with those difficulties, Galatians 5.16, I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for those who are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what, we, what Paul is telling us is he confesses to us, he struggles with sin, and then he admonishes us, rely on Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus Christ, and walk by the spirit. You are not part of the equation. You're trusting in somebody else. We don't ease. We don't roll. We don't like float into holiness. It is something that we are called to wrestle and to struggle with every day. And so we've been sanctified. We've been justified. And we've defined those terms. We, we now have a new principle at, life, er, at work in our life called the spirit. And so that's what we're called to do in this struggle between now and the resurrection. Because think about the resurrection for a moment. This body is not meant to function the way it is now. It wasn't built to be this way. Sin and our, our, our functional alignment with Adam has ruined it. And yet, what Paul reminds us in, in 1 Corinthians 15 is the mortal must put on the immortal. If there is a physical body, there is a spiritual body. And the spiritual body doesn't mean it's, you know, like not material. It means it's a, a body that's functioning by the work of the Spirit. So we have the resurrection to look forward to. We have Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem come down from heaven, an earth where sin and death and hell and everything against us has been removed. And we exist in this physical body without having that war anymore. Um, that's the hope we can look forward to. That's where we can be watching. And so that's how we walk by the Spirit now is reminded that Jesus has defeated our foes and there's a day when they're all going to be put away. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I'm grateful that um, we are not functioning under the principle of law where one mistake, one sin, one misplaced thought or intention ruins us. And, and cast us out forever. But Lord, you have placed us in the realm of the Spirit where our minds and our hearts are renewed. We're, we're justified by Jesus Christ. We're under his protection. And so in the midst of that, before you, since you've um, renewed our minds and hearts, and until you renew our, spirit, our, our physical bodies, rather, Lord, 
help us in that middle part, that, that struggle between those two realities to walk by the Spirit. Lord, thank you that we are a church body, and I pray that we would remind each other and encourage each other and, and hold each other's hands and, and let's struggle through this together. But Lord, we know that we can do it because we have a victor who's defeated those enemies. And so Lord, give us the power. Show us the right way. Lead us how to walk in that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.